Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode hello hello and welcome back to the consummate athlete podcast peter how's it going it's going well we're rolling along into this you know holiday season hurtling towards the new year i hope everyone is closing off the year in good spirits and and you know doing the things you like to be doing and so forth yeah yeah it's sort of that like hectic but exciting time of the year um yeah lots of lots of training going on lots of indoor and outdoor training going on these days which is which is nice. It's actually very strange weather in Canada. I feel like we're yo-yoing up and down and you know, way below freezing and tons of snow to suddenly well, everything's melted. Some people would say that's what Ontario is, is sort of this back and forth and Fair enough. sort of crummy all the time, but I don't like those people, mm. so they can say what they like. <laughs> anyway, um, as we're heading into the new year, of course, you know, we, we love a good goal setting and um, just sort of reflective uh time of year despite how cheesy it may feel to have those kind of new year new you stuff i frankly love it well i think sports psych you know mental performance consultants you know this idea of mental performance and and psychology generally i think you know through the pandemic certainly this has come to the forefront uh you know as being important i think we've been on this trajectory for years that you know the mental aspects of sport performance and and life more generally uh, are becoming more understood as as valuable right and uh, in sport especially you know as we're eking out all the benefits and all the you know gains you know these marginal gains or whatever you want to call them uh, you know we're certainly starting to turn to these mental factors more and more as uh, you know determinants of of sport yeah and a few weeks ago uh, we did an episode where I talked about starting sort of more regular therapy we'll call it uh, we actually got a lot of good feedback on that one uh, a lot of cool. people appreciated that and <laughs> you know for me it's been super helpful and I think people can kind of come at it in a couple different ways you know you can either start with sort of your more traditional therapy and then maybe shift into sports performance therapy or working with a sports performance consultant or psychologist to sort of hone that stuff or I think what a lot of these sports psychs have said to me as I've interviewed them over the years is for a lot of people sports psych can almost be a really great kind of intro into regular therapy and sort of learning these life skills as far as dealing with stress and anxiety because when we're talking about dealing with start line jitters or setting goals or any of these things they all reflect right back into real life so you can either come at it from like you're doing it in the sports side and it reflects into real life or you do it in kind of more of the everyday life and it reflects into sport Sure. And there's, you know, obviously going to be limitations to what, you know, maybe a mental performance consultant will be able to help you with. So, I mean, probably some people just will gravitate more towards, you know, something if it's, you know, marital or it's, you know, something at work or, or something like that. Right. So you'd probably find someone that way just based on, you know, what you feel like you need help with. Um, but, you know, sport is a nice way to go into it. And if you feel like you're applying, you know, some of these principles around, you know, we talked today about perfectionism and goal setting, you know, these things, you know, you can see how this, you know, being focused, you know, refocusing, uh, dealing with nerves and, you know, what they might call arousal. So uh, I think certainly a lot of these tools, we hope at least will transfer between sport and life. 
It's really funny. Actually, I was speaking to a, another psychologist about this the other week, and we were talking about how uh, in sport, a lot of actually coaches, uh, and we're talking, you know, high school sport coaches, that kind of thing, uh, won't seek out mental health help for themselves. For themselves, yeah. yeah. And we were saying you could actually, if you reframed sports psych to mental performance coaching, uh, suddenly you actually got a lot more buy-in from high school coaches. Was what this guy had observed. Interesting. Uh, so I think maybe yeah, if if the idea of sports psychology is just like eek to you, uh, think about it as mental performance coaching. And that sometimes really helps reframe the, uh, the situation. Uh, hmm. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, so today we have Dr. Josie Perry. She's from the UK uh, and someone who I followed, you know, on Twitter. And, and she has a great website as well, uh, which we'll link in the show notes. Um, but I've really enjoyed just her approach to, we'll say sports psychology, mental performance generally. Uh, and, and she had a new book come out that sort of caught my eye that's directed at teenage athletes. It's called I can, again, we'll link to all her books, uh, in the show notes. Uh, but it just seemed like it's a really good looking book, which I say a few times during the podcast as well. Uh, but it just seemed, you know, I don't want to say simple, but it seemed very straightforward. Like it, it's not super long again, cause it's directed at teenage athletes, you know, but it, it's, there's good activities, good exercises. And a few of the, we talked through a few of the different ones today in the show as well, uh, that I think is going to have value for everyone. Uh, but again, if you have a teen in your life, these, some of them are, are, you know, maybe more focused towards teenage athletes. You know what? I stand by this. I genuinely believe the books for teenagers and kids are sometimes the most useful books for adults. We well, always talk about Bernstein bears. bears for diet and messy room. And yeah, some of these concepts, right. Are like these, these big rocks of, of success in life, maybe. Are yeah shockingly just read the children's books read the read the teen versions and i feel like that actually gets gets to the point much quicker because it's they're not trying to explain everything quite as much right it's very straightforward kind of cuts the not the bs but it just cuts through the the stuff you don't really need to know and gets right to the point of like here's the things yeah yeah and and josie says in the podcast that you know, there's coaches who are and parents who are, you know, get a copy for themselves and then, you know, for the athletes so they can see sort of like what the activities might be in some of the approaches. And I think, you know, you're always some of the nice thing about starting with, as you say, a book for kids or a more primer is it might give you a, a sense of, okay, yeah, like this, you know, goal setting or, or you know, Josie talks a lot about values, uh, which I thought was a great thing, you know, how our personal values might relate to a, a, an appropriate big goal we're setting, right? Or why we might do something, right? That nebulous why we talk about. Uh, so I really like that. And that might, you know, maybe you go down into a deeper, you know, rabbit hole or, or get more books or get con consultation, you know, or coaching, as you say, uh, on that, right? And, and you can go deeper with, you know, we'll say a quote unquote adult book, uh, you know, if you find something. Mm-hmm. All right, perfect. Well, let's let's get into it. Uh, enjoy this episode with Josie Perry. All right, well, I'll just say, you know, welcome to Josie Perry. Dr. Josie Perry is here on the Consummate Athlete Podcast, and we're so excited to have you. Um, so welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, and so you have, you know, several books have come out here in the last couple of years. Um, and this most recent one that I wanted to talk to you about today is just, you know, A, a beautiful book. It's called I Can, The Teenage Athlete's Guide to Mental Fitness. And it's it's just a beautiful looking book. It is. I am the the publishers I have for this book um, is a brilliant guy who was starting out on his own, creating his own company, producing the kind of books that he really wanted to see out there, mainly around sport, mainly around psychology. And I was his his first author. Um, 
so I kind of thought I'll be quite cheeky and ask if I can have some input into the design. And he was like, yeah, what do you want? And I found this brilliant guy on Instagram that I just loved the style that, that they were putting out. And I was like, can we approach them and see if they'll do the cover? I want as many sports as possible shown on the cover because in the UK, certainly when you talk about sport in general, the average person will be thinking about football, rugby, cricket. And I really wanted to be able to show there's so many more sports than that. Um, cool. So yeah, they managed to go and uh, get them and create this really cool cover. And we did actually at one point try and count how many sports were represented, but I lost count at something over 30. Okay. And that's right up our alley with the consummate athlete. You know, that's part of our, our idea here is, you know, cross training is a big part of this and just being able to sort of do different sports, uh, you know, sort of this multi-sport thing. So it, it's right up our alley uh, <laughs> for that. But also being a consummate athlete, you know, is sort of this, the mental game as part of it, right? Being put together, being, you know, ready uh, for these things and the different challenges, um, you know, that, that trying different sports, uh, you know, brings. Um, and, and one question, you know, I am curious, I, I follow you on Twitter as well. Your Twitter is, is superb. You have some great stuff that comes out on that. And I did notice recently in, in the consummate, the vein of consummate athlete and trying new sports, you've been trying different uh, classes at the gym. I have. Um, so I've just joined a brilliant new gym and I've been injured for a while. So I think of myself as a triathlete. Okay. Um, and I was training for a couple of marathons this autumn and kind of realized that this wasn't going to happen my my hip was too sore and my physio told me it was a really bad idea to carry on running through it so I was like I need something a little bit different so I joined a new gym and decided actually while I've got the time while I'm not training for anything specifically I will go and try a bunch of new classes um I think my mind appreciated doing something different I'm not sure my body has appreciated it so much um so with all the running I'd been doing, I haven't really used my arms in a very long time. And, and you go to like a body pump class right. and I picked up the lightest weights I could possibly choose. And yet still for about three days afterwards, I could not use my arms. Um, and you look around this class, these women are amazing. I don't know how they do it, but I, I felt like I, I was very much the weak one in the corner. Um, okay. But I've, lo- I've got into bar classes and I did ballet as a kid. So that's been oh. brilliant to get back into dance. And was that um, like, is that your favorite so far or, or which? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, last Saturday we were doing pirouettes, which was quite comical when you've got probably 20 middle-aged ladies all trying to do pirouettes. Uh, but it was lovely to feel like you could stretch out tall and you could focus on something and you could really try and master a skill. Hmm. I, uh, I don't have any of that background, but I do have a, you know, I'll try basically anything once. And I went through school for kinesiology and there were certainly the, the quarter credits, the activity credits were part of it. So I've done a lot of these, you know, step class and dance class, and I have done one bar class and I would do it again, actually. There's a lot of ones I wouldn't go back to, but um, it's, it's a, <laughs> it hurts at points. Yeah, this. It, it does, but it feels like an all over hat and it, the ache the morning, the ache the next morning isn't a I can't use my body but it's that really nice warm I've used my body and I can feel it's got stronger Hmm. so yeah that's my favorite so far okay well I just thought that was interesting you know people you know this is again something that we're trying to you know as we become adults as we get injured you know sometimes having these other activities pursuits classes whatever are is beneficial as you say sort of for the like would you say for the you know our 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 mental health even right like you, you want to keep moving most definitely. So probably 90% of the work I'm doing at the moment is around performance anxiety. 
I'm sure a lot of that is triggered because we've just had 18, 20 months of a global pandemic, um, which has lowered the threshold for anxiety for many of us. But I also see it in a lot in athletes who have a very, very strong identity around the specific sport that they do. So if everything about them is I'm a cyclist, I am a soccer player, I am a basketball player, and that's who they feel they are, that can be quite dangerous because as soon as they're injured or as soon as you can't play basketball because there's a pandemic, everything falls apart Mm. and you don't really know who you are anymore. Every single competition, every event, every challenge is a threat because it's a threat to your self-identity and it triggers really unhelpful behaviors, unhelpful feelings. Mm. So I think it's really helpful. The more things we do, we don't want to stretch ourselves too thin, but the more different identities you can have, it's so much better to have an athletic identity than a pure sport identity. Mm. Then actually, if you can't do something like I can't run at the moment, then you get to go and try something else. You still feel like you, but you're not quite so triggered. You've not got those high levels of anxiety. Right, right. And this is, you know, anyone, you know, adults, I think it's, you know, we're all getting older and, you know, sometimes it gets harder to run, you know, there's not the fewer and fewer people run as you get older and older, you know, some people are amazing and, and are the people running the, you know, 70 year old marathons and stuff like this. Uh, but it gets, it gets tricky. And so, you know, is that from your position, is that, you know, suggesting that people go in and try, you know, music or, or, you know, how do you, as a practitioner, how do you help someone, especially, I guess we talk about adults, we'll also talk about kids here in a second uh, and, and their sort of specialization, but with an adult, what would sort of be the next steps then? So we actually, I do a pie chart with them. I've kind of, we do oh. two pie charts. So the first this pie chart is. Would appeal to adults, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do you separate out your day? What are you doing in your day? So what percentage of that pie chart is sleep? eating, caring for other people, working. The Instagram slice is surprisingly big. (laughs) Yeah, yes. Um, And then you get to teens and it's the TikTok slice that's huge. Um, But yeah, so you do a pie chart of your actual life. How much time are you spending on different things? And then you do a pie chart of kind of your mental life. How much mental energy, how much time thinking about certain things are you spending? And actually, sometimes there you might see that the sport side is huge compared to the actual amount of time you're able to do it. Hmm. And we start to notice then their identity is probably too strong in certain areas. Right. And that that's quite a risk. And so we might want to filter it down a little bit. Uh, and often we'll be looking at where somebody has got into a bit of a pickle because their identity is too strong. We start to really look at what else do you love? Is it baking? Is it hanging out with your friends that you haven't been doing so much because you've been so focused on that marathon? Serious training, quote unquote. Yeah. And and we start to pull out all the other things that they love in life so that if, when something goes wrong with their sport, it's not a huge issue. Mm -hmm. It means when they've got a competition, rather than it feeling like everything, it's, this is great. I'd love to do well. But if I don't do well, it's not the end of the world. I'll be okay. Right. And, and you could see how that could become a huge anxiety, you know, because you're risking, you know, if I get injured, which is going to happen, right? Like, in, yep. <laughs> you, know, you know, a lot of these sports, you know, some of them are safer than others, but, you know, there's a risk there all the time. Hmm. And with kids, then I, I guess we can shift towards even a, a kid sort of application of the same idea. You know, we're specializing, they're thinking about it a lot. It's, it's everything. Um, 
you know, I always felt like going to university was a good call. You know, even though I was trying to race elite mountain bikes when I was going to school, that for exactly what you're saying, like if it goes good or it goes bad, you have to go to class and do something else. And, you know, social stuff's almost built in. We see looking at the guys that were running a lot in the 70s, the 80s in the UK, some of those guys were really fast at marathons. We had two hour 10, two hour 11s, and they were all training after work. They were training before work and they were training after work, but they were certainly not on funding in any way. Um, There wasn't the kind of rest and recovery that from a physiological perspective we would be advocating now. Um, They were squeezing their training in around everything else they were doing. And actually we have a large number of people that are able to take it much more seriously. They get funding. The times haven't dramatically changed considering that we do have that funding in place that you should be able to get the rest and recovery. And I've certainly seen athletes who were doing really, really well, enjoying what they were doing on the side of their job or their schoolwork, but they get really good. They go on to funding and they get sponsorship mm-hmm. and suddenly the pressure and the stress of, Oh, this is my job. I have to do this really well. Now I should be better. I'm being funded. I should be able right. to do this it becomes huge and it becomes a big threat. And so it's much, much harder to actually perform at a good level. Hmm. And so for parents, you know, this is is maybe a challenge to that, you know, putting the the child in, you know, every day of the week, we're going to football or or whatever type of practice, right? You know, cycling practice is no different now, Um, you know, versus, you know, maybe having free days, you know, imagine this or homework days or or whatever, right? Just not maybe every day. Uh, And it's tough, right? Because you maybe see other parents, right? Do you find that that's a big pull is the like... uh, almost like keeping up, you know, trying to make the team? I think in some sports, it's probably worse than others. So some of the stories we hear coming out of, say, gymnastics, when the kids are expected at a really young age to be kind of 10, 15 hours of training a week, it's huge on a young body and it's huge on the parents. And they're obviously all talking about what's expected and the kids really want to do it because they love it. But I definitely think sometimes less can be more and the kids that are burnt out by 14 15 you've then lost them to that sport for a very long time often I'll hear from people in their 30s that want to get back into their sport and they dropped out at school and they regret dropping out but it was perfectly understandable Mm -hmm. because there was so much pressure and they were kind of burnt out from trying to do everything so young so I love the idea of having some space that's actually the boredom time, even if it is on Instagram or TikTok, but (laughs) the time not to have to be perfect, not to have to try and succeed, not to be giving it everything because we do need time to rest and recover. Hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a tricky balance. I think like you say, the, the free day almost, you know, they might choose to even go ride on their own, but I almost wonder if, you know, for parents, that's sort of the, the easiest thing is just not structuring. And if they go out and play on their bike or kick the football against the back of the house or something then you know there's some intrinsic motivation there Mm -hmm. they're doing it because they love it brilliant Mm -hmm. but when they feel like it's expected and there's an extrinsic motivation so they're doing it because they need to win or they need to impress a coach Mm -hmm. that's when we need to give them space now you've you know we've so that's sort of like a practical example of you know kids versus adults we could both you know both groups could get you know too deep too you know too much of their day too much of their person is you know identity is is uh uh 
uh, in that. And, and you've written a few books over the last couple of years. We'll, of course, include all the links. Um, some this latest one is for teens versus the other ones, I would say, are more you know general or, or adult focused. So is there a difference, you know, as you're writing this, I can for for teens, what what is the difference, would you say, in terms of the, you know, aside from the great design on the cover, um, <laughs> what is the difference, you know, when you're presenting, you know, these concepts, uh, you know, motivation and this sort of stuff? I guess it's about the simplicity. So it comes down to the simplicity of the concept and then the simplicity of the writing. And that's a really hard skill um, that you're constantly honing. But actually, I think many adult books would be better if they were simpler um and I think it's hard in sports psychology we're fairly although it's been going for about 100 years apparently we're still fairly new in this world you imagine if you want to be great as an athlete you get your coach and you'll get a physio to help fix you and you might get some strength and conditioning but actually sports psych is normally seen as the thing you do to fix something it's not seen as the upfront let's go and learn some really good mental skills and so I think as sports likes, we often try and justify why we're here and we give way too much information and we try and kind of we're almost bombarding people with things. Mm. But when you really simplify it um, and get those concepts um, much clearer, they work for everybody. Mm. So I've had lots of parents that buy two copies of the book because they want a copy for them oh, because yeah. they want to be able to explain it to their kids um, but they also want their kid to have a copy because it's a workbook. Um, the idea is that kids can write all over it and they fill in the sections with their own thoughts and their own ideas. So that needs to be private for them. It needs to feel like their safe space to explore some of these ideas. But the parents want to understand it, too. So they get their own version. Sure. And it, that's really nice because you get lovely feedback going, well, I've, I've done my confidence jar and I've been doing stars in the dark. Um, and so actually they work for all of us. Right, right. Yeah, and the activities are great. I have a few, you know, I want to even just touch on just, you know, I, I really liked a few of them. So we'll, we'll touch on those too. Um, but keeping on that same, you know, idea of communication, you have a, a rich communications background, um, you know, and so I, I, you must find that there's so much of this sports psych or this mental performance. Um, so many of the concepts, not all of them, but a lot of them come down to communication between the parent and the athlete, the athlete and another athlete, the athlete and the coach, certainly. Um, do you find that that's, you know, a, a unique angle that you're able to bring to this, uh, you know, field to your, your consultations? I would hope so. See, I spent, um, my, my master's is in media and communication. Um, my PhD is in political communication. And, um, then I spent 15 years, uh, working as a communications director. So trying to get sometimes quite complicated messages, out um, and help people understand what the organizations I was working for wanted to do, how they could help them. Mm -hmm. And so taking a lot of those skills into sports psychology, helping, I think the biggest thing is helping people realize that others don't think in the same way that they do. <laughs> they don't know what's in my head. Yeah. It's my, it's one of my biggest problems. <laughs> I'm a genius by my own measure. Yeah. Well, well, what really struck me is I do a lot of work with athletes around their values and I will give them a sheet. I think of 52 values. A lot of them are in, I can, 
and we'll do a process where we we cut out many lots of them we scour down we have a chat about the ones they've got left and at the end of kind of an hour session we've got three values left that really really matter to them and we know whether they matter to them whether when one of those values is violated they tend to get really frustrated or angry or lose it so often say an example for say a tennis player they often have a value of fairness if they are in a match and somebody cheats or does a dodgy line call they will very quickly get angry they will trigger much quicker than somebody else without that fairness value so we know the values are right if when they get violated we tend to lose it much quicker but we also know they're things they always want to move towards so they can always make a decision in their sport about does it help me move closer towards my values Hmm. and something I noticed recently was of all the hundreds of athletes I have gone through those values with in that process no one has ever had the same three values Hmm. even though they're like they're picking from the same sort of list of 52 they're all picking from the same list Hmm. and often they'll have something like success or achievement or challenge in there particularly if they're kind of high performing athletes but often a lot of the others will be different Hmm. and when you realize that these are mine, this is what matters to me. When these are broken, this might trigger me. It might trigger my anxiety. These are things I want to move towards. And then you realize that your teammates will all have different values and your coach will have a different value and your parents might have different values. It helps you realize that something that really matters to them probably isn't important to you, Hmm. but something that's really important to you might not even be on their radar. And that helps handle some of the frustration that we have. Because a lot of communication issue is frustration about different goals, different values, different things that are important. And often I will work with athletes that are coming over to America on scholarships to university. And their biggest issue is going to be the fact they've been quite autonomous until now. They've got to choose what they do. They choose who their coach is. And they come over on a scholarship and they have to work with the coach that's at that school. They've got no choice. And the coach's goal is to get um, NCAA points and to get certain points in their league. The athlete's goal is often to get a GB vest if you're coming from the UK. And so their goals will be very different. The types of events they might want to enter would be very different. And they're then unlikely to have that chat to see that they're on an entirely different page and so they just get really frustrated with each other and the athlete feels like the coach doesn't care the coach feels like the athlete's not pulling their weight and you end up with some real tensions and frustrations whereas actually if they had a proper chat and said my goal is this oh my goal for you is this and came to some kind of agreement in the middle of what they can and can't work on, they'd actually be able to pull in the right direction and there would be a lot less stress in the process. Hmm. Yeah, that that would definitely improve a lot of different discussions, I would imagine, right? Even just understanding it, like you say, and how to approach, um, you know, a discussion or or concern you have knowing that the other person is, you know, this is what they're trying to do. And it strikes me that, you know, I'm thinking of like coach to coach sort of, or like coach to administration type discussions, but it strikes me that a lot of times the, the goals probably aren't, you know, in direct, you know, head on collision mode, right? Like they're, they're probably, you know, in alignment, you know, we all want to win or we all want to do well or, or whatever, right? Like there's some of these stuff's going to overlap, 
Uh, it's maybe just how we go about it or how we word it or, or something. Yeah. So a really good example was, um, say, an athlete that is a great rower. Rowing, certainly in the UK, is very much um, often how well you do in erg tests dictates which seat you get in a boat. And so people are constantly ranked. They always know where they are in the club, where they sit, how well they're doing, which is a huge stress in itself. And so somebody that gets, say, put in a second boat feels like they failed. They've not been put in the first boat. It's a failure. That's their translation of a situation. However, a coach could see it as they're really strong. I need them to lead the second boat because the river's really strong at the moment. It's not safe to go out there with novices. I need some good people in that second boat. So actually, it's a, a stamp of approval on that athlete. You're doing brilliantly. I need you to step up and be able to lead. The athlete translates it as failure. And simple conversations at times could make a huge difference to the athletes suddenly going, oh, okay, I'm respected, I'm valued, this is brilliant, I'm going to put more effort in, I'm, I'm going to get more dedicated to the club and to the boat that I'm in, mm -hmm. rather than somebody being disheartened, right. dropping out, not wanting to be there, skipping some sessions because they realise they're not valued. Mm -hmm. And so the better communication we can have in teams, sometimes it needs the athlete to be quite brave to ask. Um, and I've certainly done sessions with athletes where we, we're coaching them to get that courage. We're looking at their values. Why will asking help you move towards that value? So it doesn't feel quite such a scary thing. It's like this, this will help with this. There's a good reason right. to do it. But we'll have we'll practice scenarios. We'll practice chatting as if I'm the coach and they're the athlete or the other way around mm -hmm. to, to get the courage. And something that struck me in the I Can book was Rebecca Adlington, who's one of the greatest swimmers we've had in the UK, said her one piece of advice to teenage athletes is to ask more questions from your coach. And she's like, you don't do it in a way that sounds like you're questioning them as if they're doing something wrong or you don't believe it. But the more questions you ask, the more ownership you have of your sport, the more you understand, the more you learn, the better an athlete you're going to be. Mm. So don't fear that your coach is going to think you're undermining them. Go and ask questions because it will make you a better athlete. Yeah. Yeah. And I think most coaches would be receptive, um, but it, it's good if you're prepared for a little bit of, you know, resistance or a, a grisly answer, maybe in some cases, uh, at least initially. But yeah, I think that's that's so good. And I think, uh, you know, on that communication thread, you know, it, it's so much of this work is is work before we get to crisis mode or to competition mode or, you know, full blowout, you know, the season's over and I didn't get to play and we lost and everything sucks. Um, you know, so much of this work is done beforehand. And I imagine some of the tr stuff you've done as far as crisis communication and that sort of stuff, it, it would have been great if the company would have been, you know, or the politician or whoever would have been doing some of this work beforehand um, to have that, that message and that protocol and that, you know, whatever, right? The trust, I guess, ultimately. Yeah. And certainly from the comms perspective, I mean, I loved doing crisis comms. The adrenaline is brilliant. You're kind of thrown in. You've got this big problem to tackle. It's fascinating from a theoretical perspective. Um, but it was always, wow, we're on this TV show this weekend and they're going to rip us to pieces. We need to practice. If you can do that work in advance so that you don't need to practice in the moment or you can just top up your skills in the moment, we'd do so much better. So the more, and I work with athletes as well on their media training on, around those things so that we've certainly seen athletes who haven't 
performed anywhere near their best because they're worried about the post-race interview that they might have afterwards um, and, and what might be said and having to perform in a environment that feels quite hostile to them and very different um, so the more we teach people communication skills in day-to-day -day life the easier all these elements become right right and you touched on there you know I keep moving here on as far as, as concepts but we'll try and keep you know weaving a thread but the you mentioned sort of you know the the stuff that goes wrong or, or you know when something goes wrong and one of the activities I really like is something I've used a little bit but yours was a, a little different and I think smarter but the the what if planning is one that I just I think would resonate with so many people could you take us through just the you know the, the basics of sort of what if planning versus you touched on it there briefly sure so I love what if planning because we all tend to have things we're worried about in our sport and we try and bury them. If I bury my head in the sand, it won't happen and I'll be okay. The problem with that is it's still stuck in our head and there's still that little nagging thought and we still feel it deep in our tummy or weighing down our shoulders. And so we just worry about it, which helps nothing at all. If we're really upfront about it, of there are always going to be worries and fears either going into a season or going into a specific race and we're really upfront about it we'll do a lot better and there's a couple of elements on it so the first stage is simply writing down what we're worried about and there's some nice research on this and I think it was the University of Chicago got um, a group of participants together and they got them to do a maths test so they got kind of an average score from each participant and then they told them for the next maths test they were going to do, there was an, a money prize. So if they did better, they'd get some money. So they added that like anxiety and that challenge into it. And half of the participants, they let sit and chat for half an hour before they went and did this test. The other half were asked to write down their worries, not do anything with them, just write them down. And then they did the tests the half that wrote down their worries got a score, half a percent, half a point. So going from, say, a B to a B plus higher than the people that just sat and chatted to their friends. So simply just writing down what what worries us is helpful. Gets it on paper. It gets, it's almost like it gets it out of our head on a piece of paper. When I do this with people, every single person says, I know it's silly, but... And then they will have something. So in swimming, we've had, I'm worried about the sharks. So we don't have many sharks. We don't have any scary sharks in the UK. Um, and we certainly don't have them in our lakes and rivers that are going to do you any harm while you're swimming, a, say, a triathlon. Lots of people have that fear. Or the, I'm worried my shoe will come off in a cross-country race. Um, and what do I do? So they might feel silly, but they're those things that secretly weigh us down and we don't want to confront them. So we kind of bury them just getting them down on a piece of paper helps. The next stage is, how do I prevent this coming true? How do I prevent it happening? So that might be with a cross country race, how do I prevent my shoes coming off? Well, you make sure you've got the right size. You've got thick socks on, you've done up the laces with double knots. Some people will put like duct tape or something around them. So you've, you've done everything you can. So you've got great preparation in place. And then there's the if then. If it happens, despite my preparation, what would I do? Because in the moment of something going wrong, we panic. We, we get flustered. We kind of usually take a disastrous choice because our emotions are playing out and we're not thinking with the sensible, logical part of our brain. 
But if we've planned for it in advance, we've got something to go to. We know what to do. So it's like, if I lose my shoe in a muddy puddle in cross country, I will stand by the side until the main group of people have come by. I'll dive in, I'll grab it, I'll carry on. Or, or I'll just run off and finish the race with one shoe on. But you've got a plan. And then having that on paper means you've got a bunch of things you can go off and do, put into your goal setting, put into your training plans. So you're preventing those things happening anyway. But also if they do, you're sussed, you've got a plan for them. And that reduces so much of the anxiety we have before events. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea of, you know, even just writing it down is is helpful. I used to do that just in my paper journal, just, you know, it was things I was concerned about. And then also, you know, things in life that I was like overthinking, you know, from work or whatever. And I, I would say that was, I called it the back burner. And I just put it on the back Brilliant. burner. And it was just like writing it down. And it's so dumb because like, it doesn't really take care of anything. But you know, it, it's nice. not, it's not relevant to the, the next day, right? The next 24 hours. Um, but I like that you're connecting it to that, that process, you know, that practice goal of, you know, the running shoes, like, would that be like, you, you know, maybe you could set a goal of like, every time I train, I'm going to do this special double knot, or I'm going to learn about, you know, how the pros tie their shoelaces. So there, yeah, or- no one else's shoe is falling off. Falling off. <laughs> um, yeah. So when I did my first Ironman, my big fear the silly one but the big one that really weighed me down was getting a puncture I hate changing punctures you're out there for so long um, you're not thinking straight by the time you're coming say towards the end of the bike and it just sat with me the whole time of oh if I got a puncture yeah if I going through so my preparation was making sure I've got new tires on my bike I've got new inner tubes I've checked them through I don't pump them up until the morning of the race and then one of the things I did was I sat there the week before my Ironman every single night whilst I watched TV, changing a tire so that it wasn't such a big thing if it happened in a race, because actually I'd done it five times last week and I'd started to get much more masterful and more skilled at doing them. So the pressure was less. And then I had a plan that if it did happen in the race, I'd get off my bike, I'd take the wheel off, I'd down a gel. So at least I had some nutrition going into me. So I'd feel good when I pushed off again. I'd sit down to change it so that I wasn't risking pulling a muscle and you work through things so that you've got that plan. And suddenly that nagging doubt has gone. You're like, if it happens, I'm okay. I'm prepped for this. I know what I'll do. Yeah. And that's, you know, exactly it, right. It's just sort of these, it almost strikes me that this is, you know, as we go through our preseason, you know, for cyclists, for summer sports, we're getting into sort of this, you know, we're starting to train, maybe starting this base phase, but this would be such great stuff. As you say, you could, you have months probably to practice flat changing, get coaching for flat changing, watch a YouTube video for flat changing. Um, You know, the weather's not great. We used to do, you know, you do trainer workouts and, and actually have to get off and, you know, in the middle of an interval, right. It would just be like, Oh, today you have to change between this, the first and second interval, you got a flat and, you know, you have to change it, right? Like while you're sweating and, you know, it's here in the basement. Oh, I'd be swearing at the time, but what brilliant training. Yeah. And, and you know, you tell the story of Michael Phelps and his goggles coming off and simulating that because he was scared, right. And he, then he actually had to do it and did really well with it. Right. And then I think that's, that's the thing, right? You, you just wouldn't be that stressed about it. You'd be bumped, but you'd get through it. Right. It's ultimately, especially in an Ironman, right. It's minutes. It doesn't really matter that much in the grand and, and exactly the thing the Michael Phelps story of um, one of his fears was that his goggles would come off in a race and so one morning his coach stood on his goggles before the session while standing on the deck and he had to practice a session with no goggles happened in a world championships his goggles filled up with water but because he was practiced he didn't panic 
and he touched the wall and I think he got a new world record. Hmm. And I've certainly seen athletes that have similar worries build that into their training. So actually you, you rock up at training and your goggles are leaking or you've forgotten them. And instead of just packing up and going home, you're like, brilliant. This is my Michael Phelps session. Right. This is the practice for when it happens. And so you can turn something that could be a real negative into a real positive. Hmm. Yeah. And you could say the same thing, like, uh, you know, so many people, they aren't ready to change the flat. I don't want to stay, stick on flat, but they don't even carry the stuff because they don't yeah. know how to fix it. But that's like, that was your simulation right there. You got a flat, then they called a taxi to come and get you or something. Um, right. So it's like being prepared for that. Does this really, you know, I, I like the, the chapter around procrastination and the concept of procrastination. Do you think that ties in here with some of these fears and these worries and, and how we might do them? Like, is that, is that what procrastination might tell us? Uh, is, is, does it point us in that direction of those? I find procrastination tends to come either when you don't care enough about what you're doing, because there's just no for motivation. If there's no big goal that I say, if the goal twists your tummy with like, oh, I really want to achieve that. If you haven't got that, you're likely to procrastinate because it doesn't mean enough to you. But we also procrastinate when it means too much, when it means everything to us, because if something means everything to us and we fail, we failed. We feel like a failure. And so often we will put excuses in our way. So we've got a good excuse if something doesn't work. So I always remember years ago when there was a guy who would always turn up late for swim training. And I look back now and was like, yeah, he was giving himself a really good excuse. If this race didn't go well, yeah, I never managed to make a full session. So yeah, that's probably why my swimming wasn't brilliant. Or the person that rocks up late to a race without having prepped properly, hasn't checked all of their kit. It's like, yeah, I was in a real rush. I've been crazy busy with work this week. No wonder the race went badly. And so they give us really good small excuses if our big race goes well, it goes badly. The problem is we're making it harder for ourselves to make that race go well. Um, so it is likely to go badly. So I think one of the scariest things for an athlete is to admit how well they would like to do. And they might be able to big it up on TV if they're talking about a certain race. But often that deep confidence isn't there. And it's really hard to say, I care about doing well in this. Because if you care about it and you screw up, you feel awful. You feel like a failure. And no one wants to feel like a failure. So we have probably the bravest thing we do in sport is actually admitting how much we want something. And then sometimes we try and almost pull out, pull down how much we want it. Because when we really want it, we tend to do things that are actually unhelpful to our performance. Um, but if we, if we really do want it, you can't lie to yourself about not wanting to go to the Olympics if that's a possibility. You really, really want it. Then it's looking at, okay, how do I become more accepting of the fact I really want this? and actually be very open about, I'm going to put in place everything that I can. And I'm going to be proud that I've got to the starting line with all of that effort, even though there's still a chance it might not work. Right. And so the bravery is something you talk about a lot. And so is that when you say bravery there, do you mean that, you know, I'm, I'm telling people about, again, I want to go to the Olympics or whatever the, the goal might be, the, the, you know, the scary goal in the future where, you know, that's almost intimidating to us. We're starting to, I believe the phrase is like self-handicap, right? We're showing up late to swim yep. class. Um, 
you know, is that bravery is sort of like in, in talking about it and admitting it, it you know, the day-to-day -day practice, like showing up on time would be brave, I guess, in that case, like what, how does that take form as, as far as the day-to-day -day or the goals? So it's not necessarily about talking about it. We do say it's helpful to share your goals with a few people that you trust and you know are on your side. We don't want to share our goals with everybody. Um, we, we want to feel safe in our goals a little bit, but it's about the honesty with yourself. And I work from a perspective called ACT, which stands for acceptance and commitment theory. And rather than trying to squash some of our, our fears and our worries and pretend they don't exist and, and reframe everything on top of them super positively, we're much more accepting, I guess, of, yeah, we have fears, we have worries, we have things that matter to us and they might go wrong. And that's okay. So there's a lot of work that I will do with athletes around being open and honest about the things we're worried about and starting to have a much healthier conversation in our own head with those, with that voice that's telling us you could fail, people are going to judge you. This could be embarrassing. And rather than agree with those thoughts that are in our head, we try and distance ourselves a little bit from them. So it's kind of, thanks, I hear you. I get that you're worried this could hurt me because it matters to me. However, it matters much more that I try my best. So I'm going to do it anyway. And there was a brilliant book in the 80s called Feel, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, Susan Jeffers. And that's the start of bravery. But I think true bravery is feel the fear, do it anyway, in the service of. So it's that why are you doing it? That's the important bit. And when we've worked on things like our values, we know why we're doing it. And so that bit's really important. So I'll give you an example of an athlete who wanted their purpose, their values, were around wanting to be the first person to get a professional contract in their sport from their ethnic background. Because their purpose was to be able to show other young people like them that it was possible because nobody, there was nobody there to show them how to do it. They wanted to be that person, that role model to show it was possible. But actually, there was, maybe they're very timid. Maybe they're nervous about going to talk to the coach about how to get better, how to do the media interviews, how to push themselves. So it took a lot of courage to go and do that, but they were doing it because they had that higher purpose. They wanted to be able to show what was possible to others so that there was a real value in them being brave. And so it's really about, I see the bravery side as kind of accepting that we all have fears, we all have worries, we all worry our shoe's going to come off or we're going to get a puncture or whatever our things are in our sport. But we're going to handle them anyway. We're going to prepare. We're going to plan. We're going to do it, even though we have those fears, because it really matters to us. And it might matter to our team and it might matter to others. And it gives us an outlet for what's important. The, the purpose then, you know, do you see that as being, you know, central to, you know, the why seems to be always this like question. And it's something I'm like curious about because it does come up a lot, but it always seems so nebulous and, and like overwhelming, right? Do you see, do you see that, you know, the, the values, the purpose, you know, is that sort of the, the way to edge into that in, in the way you tend to work in, with the why? So I do quite a lot of work outside of sport. I'll often work with entrepreneurs, lawyers, 
um, medics who are going through qualifications. Um, and we do a lot of work around mainly kind of trying to make really good decisions, which is what we're trying to do in sport all the time. Everything we're doing is a, a decision. Um, and we'll do a lot of work around those decisions. And we work on five areas to make the best decisions you can in life. Will I enjoy it? Sometimes we won't enjoy it in the moment. A lot of us, but we don't enjoy it in the moment, but we enjoy the process. We enjoy knowing we've achieved something. It's a big picture, either type one or type two enjoyment, but will there be some enjoyment there at some point? Do I have the capacity to do it? Because high performers tend to try and do absolutely everything and then can't always do it as well as they would like and then beat themselves up because it's not possible to do everything. So do I actually have the capacity to do this? Do I have the capability to do it? There's a really famous quote that's used all the time in the UK from Richard Branson, um, a virgin fame, who says, um, say yes and then figure out how to do it. And I don't like that idea of winging it. I actually want people to be much more. Yeah, I've got I won't have 100 percent of those skills that needed, but I need quite a few of them because otherwise I'm just going to feel horrifically uncomfortable and I won't be bringing any mastery to what I'm doing. So. Do I have the capability? Do I have the capacity? Will I enjoy it? And then the last two questions. Does it somehow move me closer towards my purpose? And does it meet one of my values in some way? So it won't, it's unlikely it'll ever meet all three values. Often our values might clash a little bit anyway. But does it move me closer towards a value? When we've got all of those, we can make much stronger decisions. Hmm. We often we have a post too, and it, it's sort of this idea of like, can you prepare for the goal that you've set, and do you want to, right? And it's sort of I, I seem to have people like they come and, you know, sometimes it's the answer is no because they have vacation, you know, for three weeks before they're going away to this big bucket list race. Their family booked the vacation, they didn't have the communication on the front end about when stuff's yeah. happening, and they want to go, but it's like you, it's not really how you would choose to go into it, right? Or you know, you don't actually like that sport. It's just sort of this random bucket list. You know, it's mountain biking or it's gravel, but you actually like road racing and group riding in the city or something right um, so i find that people come a lot with that and so those questions you've sort of those five great uh you know questions or check marks um are, are great i like that um it helps the decision you make feel more authentic right so there are no perfect decisions but it helps you make one that feels most like you and then it's harder to beat yourself up afterwards and most of the people I work with, highly perfectionistic, very high achievers, usually beating themselves up for not being perfect, which is mm -hmm. impossible. Mm -hmm. That's um, where we're going next too. So. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, and so, so when you are like that, you're never going to be able to make the perfect decision because there is no perfect decision. But the closest you can get to it is making one that feels like it's authentically you. You've made it as close to who you are as possible and you're able to give as much of you as possible. And the fourth one was, does it move you sort of closer to your purpose? Was what you said. Yeah. I like that, right? It's almost this idea. I, I always talk about failing forward. I like that idea of like, you know, you learn, I did Ironman, but like I have nothing to do with triathlon otherwise, but I wanted to learn to swim. And so it was this right. thing that like, you know, my wife, Molly, uh, co-host here as well, she's, they always go to the beach. Her family's always gone to the beach. My family's never gone to the beach. And I was sort of scared, you know, you talked about sharks and stuff like not necessarily yeah. sharks, but I assumed, you know, water just means it's not safe. So how was I going to scare myself? So we did this Ironman thing. We took, you know, you know, did this over a couple of years. And so it actually helped me 
it wasn't going to be enjoyable at parts. It was neat that we did it, but it did, you know, now I can swim. We went surfing and we go to the beach and it, it's good. Yeah. Right? I'm not scared of getting sucked out to the ocean and never to return um, or as scared. So I like that. I like that close to your purpose uh, is great. I love that. And then does and it the mean- question to ask to find the purpose? Cause it's the hardest bit. Mm-hmm. I have had a 23 year old that said, this is my purpose. Everybody else, it takes time of every age. It's really hard to find. It would be wonderful if we could all kind of figure out our purpose as teenagers and then live our life trying to move (laughs) in that direction. Always the same direction. Yeah. Linear path. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be lovely. And most of it, most of the time we're trying to figure it out usually in our forties or our fifties. And we've gone like, Oh, we've got a limited time on this earth left. What do we want to do with it? What do we want to have left behind? Do you, do you think I've misrepresented when I said like my purpose in doing that was to learn to swim? Have I misrepresented purpose or is that an okay use of it? I would say that became a goal, but I would imagine maybe your purpose is around constantly stretching yourself to see what's possible right. or about or maybe adventure spending, spending or bravery time with or family. family. Yeah. So maybe yeah. Okay. I get um, it. Or being a role model to others in your family, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So the purpose is big. It's the hardest thing we work on. I ask my athletes to write their own Wikipedia page. So if you're a teen, in 20 years' time, when you look at Wikipedia, which I'm sure won't exist in 20 years' time, but something (laughs) of that. They don't ask you what it is, yeah. (laughs) No. Um, But but whatever the, the replacement thing is, when they look at that in 20 years' time, what has somebody written about them? If they could write it, what would it say? And that really helps focus your mind. And if they're older, we do it when you're in your rocking chair at 80 and you're looking back on your life. Why was it worth you being put on this earth? What was the point of you being here? What have you left behind to make this place better? Nice. That really focuses you on, yeah, it's this. And then I like, you know, if we have these three values, you know, going through this process, we have three values. I like that it, it didn't, it's not going to check necessarily all three. You know, never. <laughs> Iron Man race really may, not, may not knock off, you know, all of that. Sometimes they clash. I had a race where um, two of mine, one is success and one is family. I had an awful race. The, the weather was horrific. Um, I was an hour out longer on the bike than I should have been. I came in, I was feeling awful. My back was in agony. I have a spinal condition. And my daughter said to me, you took ages, mummy. What was wrong? And I was like, ouch, stabbed to the heart. Um, Bless her, she was only four at the time. Um, And I was like, I'm going to finish, I'm going to finish. And I went and got my trainers on and I went out on the run. Everything hurt. It was pouring with rain. It was just a mud fest. And I could have probably jogged around that and I would have got a medal. And it was a national championships in triathlon. So I could have got a medal at a national champs, which would have fulfilled the success criteria. That's that one. But... I would have left my daughter standing out in the rain for another two hours. She'd already been out in the rain for five hours. She was miserable. I don't want her to think triathlon's a rubbish sport because it involves her getting a cold and being wet. Right. right. So I, my point at that was I literally running through those values. And I was like, I know it sounds awful for a sports psych to quit halfway through a race, but she matters more. My family mm. value overrides success right now. And I walked back, I'd done about a kilometer. I walked back to transition. I packed up my stuff and we went home. Right. And hmm. we, we did have to be um, pulled out of the car park by a tractor because the mud was so bad. <laughs> Sounds like um, a lovely race experience. 
but that's what she actually remembers is the tractor. So she has oh. a good memory. Um, but it, to me, it mattered far more that she thinks triathlon's really cool to do than mummy finished a race and got another medal that we've got oh. hundreds downstairs. So they will clash, but you'll know in that moment what matters most. Mm. I like it. And then you might also decide, okay, this one race is all about success. It's the world championships. You're going to Kona or wherever they're going to do it now. And, you know, maybe the family can't come and that's a sacrifice that you have to make, but you know, maybe they don't always coexist. You know, you don't want to, yeah. as you say, leave her out. Now it's super hot out, <laughs> windy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's, it's being really clear on where your big goals are. Hmm. Does that goal twist your tummy with excitement when you think about it do you almost start grinning do you start planning are you really excited about it is it on your mind those are the goals where we have to be brave we have to push we have to see how can I use my values to push me forward what am I going to do with it and those are the the ones to push ourselves to go harder on not everyone has to be like that Um, and when they do that's probably when we've got our sport out of sync with Mm. our life Mm speaking of being out of sync you know we're in the last sort of five minutes here and i want to make sure we do touch on this because i think it'll resonate with a lot of listeners and i think it's also something i see with a lot of the youth now you know they're trying to get to university and they have to have perfect marks and it's this idea you present as sort of perfectionism versus adaptive perfectionism and we don't have a lot of time for you to explain that but did you want to just introduce that and maybe that's something everyone can look forward to in the book uh, but this idea of adaptive perfectionism what is that so i would say because most of the work I do is around performance anxiety at the moment. I, I can't think of anyone that's come to see me with that that doesn't have some element of perfectionism because they really, really care about doing well and they will put everything into doing well. So they are usually incredibly high performers. Even if they don't have natural talent, they will work so, so hard to reach those goals they've set. Right. And it's probably got them to a pretty high level. It will have got them to an incredibly high level. However, they probably haven't celebrated that much along the way because as soon as they've achieved something, they've gone on to the next thing. There's kind of that constant, right, right. what do I do next? Rather than sitting back and kind of enjoying the fact that you've achieved something brilliant. Mm. But also if you're trying to achieve perfection, it doesn't exist. So even if you get close, all you'll do is raise the bar because you're focused on doing even better and I call it the well-being gap. And you'll always have this gap between where you believe you should be and where you actually are. And the word should is really important there. Because mm. if, if you're a coach and you start noticing people using the word should a lot, they're usually trying to live up to a much higher right, level than right, right, right. it's probably humanly possible. Um, and that well-being gap can be really um, harmful because you stop enjoying what you're doing because you constantly feel like a failure and you don't get the celebration elements you're just well what's next what's next what else should I be doing and it's very hard to to step back and to realize that actually I've done brilliantly and I should be so proud of myself and so often the work we do to make it much more adaptive is you're still going to set high goals we're not we're not going to try and take that away from you in any way but we do want you to be a bit more flexible about how you do things because a lot of the things that athletes will put in the place in order to achieve perfection are routines and rigidity. And that's what can get harmful. 
So we'll do lots of work around um, say yes, no. Each day for a week, you will stop doing something you always do. So that could be you get out of bed in the morning and you shake down your your duvet, your quilt, and you make it really neat and nice. And that you can't leave your bedroom until you've done that. So it's like, okay, that's your thing. Don't do it for a week. Not because you're trying to become slovenly, but because you're trying to teach your brain, you can change routines. You can do things that are a bit different. You might get your parents to write lots of different challenges in a in a bowl and you pull one out. You have to go and try something different. So it's kind of forcing you to break some habits, break some routines. So you realize that the world doesn't fall apart if you do something a little bit differently. And so it starts to give you a little bit more flexibility. We try and get you to purposely celebrate. When you have a success, celebrate that. We also try and look really importantly in this case, look at your values. How can you start to measure yourself by whether you achieve or or have done something in line with your values rather than measuring yourself by the metrics that are really easy to measure so rather than where did I come in that race what was the wattage that I my average wattage what speed did I go you can look at did I work hard the whole way through um did I help my teammates so you start to look at your values and set goals that are much more in line with your values did I purposely try and enjoy it rather than measurements that match everybody else's. And then you start to, to enjoy the perfectionism that you've got and get benefits from it. Right. Right. And be, you know, I think some of it too is, you know, being, you talk a bit about bravery and and planning to be, you know, almost setting goals to be brave or to be, you know, I've been cycling. I'm thinking, you know, maybe this race, you know, we don't even care about the result. It's trying to be aggressive early and, you know, break out of that perfect pacing or, you know, always finishing. I always finish. And it's like, well, why do you have to finish? Right. I, you know, can we set a goal? That's like, you have to lead the first lap because you never leave the first lap, but now you have to be out on the front and that's the practice goal, the race goal. Right. And yeah. Um, even though it won't be perfect, right? Perfect in that you you finish perfectly, right? Yeah. And it becomes much more the whole process is, what can I learn from this? How do I get more masterful? How do I develop processes that will work for me? And try and forget about the outcome as mm-hmm. much as possible. Because when we focus on the outcome, we tend not to do the processes very well. Right. Um, and then we don't do so well. When we focus on the processes, when we focus on learning, when we focus on development and mastery, we tend to get better outcomes, but we have to move our focus away from outcomes first. Especially as you get, like you say, like it's sort of this idea of, you know, what worked, what got you here won't get you there sort of idea. Like once you've gotten, you know, past, you're not a beginner anymore, right? Like anything sort of works to start. Uh, you have to be a little more specific and the stakes being higher, right? Everyone's good. Everyone's, you know, wants to win. Yeah. Everyone, there's only one gold medal. Um, but, but one of the interviewees in the book um, I love is um, a paracyclist, Dame Sarah Story Um, and every time I've interviewed her we've had to like recount how many Olympic titles she has how many world titles how many European titles and she was in the high 70s last time we chatted but one of the things I loved was she says I'm not that fussed around winning races and actually winning is sometimes annoying because I can't really learn when I win and I'm not fussed about winning everything I'm fussed about being the very best cyclist that I can be. And I can only get really masterful at it when I've got lots of other people to learn from, when I've got mistakes to learn from, when I've got things that have gone wrong. 
And so all of her focus is on the processes and learning and being a brilliant cyclist. And that's what tends to get her all of those medals rather than the fact she's sitting there going, I must win. So the one rule I give people when we, before they have any competition um, with my athletes, we create what's called a confidence booster. And there's examples in the book, but the first question on that is what's my goal? And the one rule is it cannot be to win. We do not look at the outcome. We, we try and have it something that you can entirely control. Hmm. I love that. And it's maybe something to ponder. And I think we'll leave people with that today. Uh, you've given us so much today, you know, to think about as far as different uh, activities and things. Um, if people want to find the book, we will certainly have the links in the show notes. Brilliant. Um, and then certainly they should give you a follow on Twitter because you are, uh, you know, very good at Twittering. Uh, and that's Josephine. I spend far too much time on Twitter. <laughs> well, I mean, we, your pie chart is your pie chart. You can spend it how you like. <laughs> um josephine perry on twitter and again we'll link to that um as well uh anything else that folks should know but yeah so i've got a website called performanceinmind.co.uk um and that's got links to buy my books but it's also got a whole section called performance zone and there are worksheets you can download um, lots of the techniques that I use are talked about on there. And it's so. great. Yeah, I actually found your uh, end of season and I got that one. The end of season cool. sort of like, what what did you enjoy? What do you want to do better? And then planning for the next one. And it was just super. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Cool. Well, again, thank you so much. We'll uh, talk with you again soon and uh, all the best with uh, this book and, and the others. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram, at consummateathlete, and we will see you next week. <laughs>